We've been in a series called Gospel Clarity. Today's the last of the sequence in that series. Um, I feel a little bit like um, Flannery O'Connor, the novelist, when she was just getting started and she had just identified an agent. Uh, She wrote to her agent and said, I must tell you how I work. I, I don't have my novel outlined and I have to write to discover what I am doing. Like the old lady, I don't know so well what I think until I see what I say. Then I have to say it over again. And, and <clears throat> that's kind of how preachers work. We don't know what we think until we preach. So we have to preach to figure out what we think. And, if, you know, in a lot of ways, this series is it's, it's the culmination of 25 years of preaching and me finally saying, oh, I think I get it now. I, I think I actually understand what I've been trying to say for the last 25 years. And, and so that's really, uh, in a lot of ways, what this series has been and, 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 and continues to be. In, in week one, we talked about the gospel being the announcement of the reign of God in Christ. Why do we need it? Well, we make lousy kings, uh, the bottom line. Week two, we talked about the gospel that calls, that the gospel itself calls us to something. And if, 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 if we don't have a gospel that calls us to a way of life, then it's really not a gospel. So we... The gospel calls us to something, and we'll be looking at that again today some. Um, In week three, the gospel is a story of glory. That was last Sunday. Uh, If I had one message to preach the gospel in, it would be last Sunday's message. If I I just had to pick one, I would do last Sunday's message as trying to get the the point across. Um, It's about God's glory being restored to us as his image bearers. Now, now. We have been crowned with glory and honor, but the, the glory we have as human beings is intended to be like the glory the moon has. The moon does not have its own glory. It reflects the glory of the sun. But if you take away the glory of the moon, there's a whole lot that changes in our lives. The, the glory of the moon is significant, and it has significant impact, and the world would be a different place. Likewise, without the church being the people of God that are bearing His image properly, bearing His glory properly, then In reality, it changes everything, or when we do, it changes it for the better. So uh, that is our calling. And so then today, uh, we're going to begin in Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. In a lot of ways today, I'm going to be taking everything I've said and pulling it all together from one text and, and, and sharing it there. So if you would read with me, beginning in Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, I will be reading from the New International Version as we go today. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may you be honored in the proclamation of this message. May we hear your call by your Holy Spirit in our hearts, calling us to yourself. 
to the obedience of faith. Lord, as we hear this gospel, Lord, may our hearts be revived and our lives be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Many wouldn't hesitate to say that if our sons or, and or daughters grow up to serve in the military, that it's an honorable thing to do. But what do we mean when we say that or think that? Well, we mean that to risk the lives of our sons and daughters for the way of life that we call America, or maybe democracy or liberty, that to risk the lives of our sons and daughters for that way of life makes sense. That's what we are saying. When we tell somebody, thank you for how you serve because they're in the military, that's what we're saying is, hey, thanks for risking your life for this way of life that we value so much. Were I to suggest that as Christians we should stand ready to give our lives for the way of life of the kingdom of Christ, I wonder how many of us even have categories to comprehend what that means. Do we live a way of life that is different than the people around us? We can comprehend that if asked to deny Christ, we must refuse to deny him, even to the point of being killed. Of course, the odds of that happening are pretty slim in our lives. But can we comprehend what is a very real possibility, not unlikely, but very likely, that we would have to give our lives, indeed sacrifice significantly, and give up the life that we call the American dream to usher in a new way of life, that of King Jesus, if we were faithful to him. Let me come at it a little differently. Almost half a century ago now, in Greenville, South Carolina, a Methodist pastor whose church building sat next to a synagogue was having coffee with the rabbi. The rabbi said, it's tough to be a Jew in Greenville. We are forever telling our children, that's fine for everyone else, but that's not fine for you. You are special. You are different. You are a Jew. You have a different story, a different set of values. Well, the church today, 50-odd years later, has an advantage that the church at that time did not have. Cultural Christianity has fallen by the wayside. Since, for example, prayer is no longer allowed in schools, not even the post office is closed on Sundays, and church no longer gets to define marriage for the culture, the church no longer has the cultural power that it once had. Now you might think, why is that good news? (laughs) Fair question. See, today it may be easier for us to understand that we too are special, that we are different that we have a different story, a different set of values. It may actually cost us something to be a Christian. Of course, I would argue it should have cost us all along, but we were just too comfortable in our setting. Of course, there is the danger that we don't realize that we are to live by a different story and have a different set of values, at least not really. There's the danger that we assume whatever the culture says is normal is, in fact, normal. That we conform to this world. To understand how we are called to a different story, a different set of values, we must understand clearly what the gospel is. 
We're, we're developing a new version of our NCK gospel summary for the teachers in particular next door to have clarity on the gospel as they communicate with the kids. And as it stands right now, that definition goes like this. The gospel is the announcement that God's good rule has been restored to the world in Jesus the King. It includes the story of how this came about through his coming life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension. I I trust that through the first three messages in this series, you can see why that would be the case, why we would define the gospel that way. And I hope today we'll make that even clearer. My goal today is to tie a bunch of what we've said together, um, and I think our text helps us do that. So we're going to explore it under four headings. The gospel is about God's reign. The gospel was promised. The gospel is about Christ's ascension. The gospel calls forth loyal obedience. And so let's begin under that first heading. The gospel is about God's reign. Now, to be sure, this is the under the hood version of the gospel. We're going to be lifting the hood, looking under the hood to see what makes this thing work. That's really what we're doing. And maybe you're one of those who says, I really don't care what makes it run. I just want to get in the car and I want to get to where I'm going. I don't need to know. And that's fine as far as it goes. Let me help you this way. People today pay a lot of money to get in a a rocket and take a trip to outer space, right? But imagine with me for just a moment that we hadn't already sent people to the moon or even into space, and that you're invited to go on the first rocket into outer space. Now, you might be excited, to be sure, and maybe you could get on there for something you could afford, but before you get in, you're going to need to know more about what makes that thing work. I mean, oh, yes, great, let's just go to outer space. You're like, what? no, no, how is that going to work? How am I going to breathe? Am I going to be okay? You're going to want to know a lot more about how it works before you put your confidence in it. Now, regarding the kingdom of God, it will never be important that you know what's going on under the hood so long as you don't intend to change your life. As long as you don't intend to let it call you to significant sacrifice. And as long as you don't intend to do that, there's no need to look under the hood because it really doesn't matter how it works or how sure we are about it. However, if you intend to let it radically change your life, to lose your life for the king's sake and the proclamation of his reign the gospel, you're going to want to know what's under the hood. Before you, like, just give up everything you've been living for up until this point, you're going to want to know, am I really? I mean, is that really what it's calling me to? And so we need to look under the hood. Our text may be Paul's clearest gospel exposition. What does Paul tell us here about the gospel in these verses? First thing he tells us is that it is the gospel of God. Now, that doesn't mean that it belongs to God, though certainly in a sense it does belong to God. Nor is it telling us that it is about God, though it is, of course, about God. To understand it better, recall what we looked at in the first week, week one. The word gospel, or euangelion, the Greek word, has a specific meaning, or had a specific meaning at that time, in the time of the New Testament, it had a, what we would call a technical meaning. I mean, yes, the etymology of the word means good news, you and Galeon, good proclamation. But that isn't what it meant. That was just its etymology. 
it had a simple meaning. If you want to simplify it, a gospel was the proclamation of a new ruler who will bring about a changed way of life or society. A longer definition might go something like this. A gospel was the proclamation of a ruler's birth, coming of age, or enthronement, including his rise to power, his speeches, decrees, and acts, which bring about fulfillment to the longings of the world for justice and peace. Or, in the words of Isaiah 52, verse 7, we saw maybe the most succinct declaration of the gospel in the entire Bible, your God reigns. Now, of course, very specific to whose God that is, it was Israel's God. So, your God reigns. Yahweh reigns, we could say. Expanded with the particulars of the New Testament and the gospel there, we we would say the gospel is the proclamation that the rule of God has been restored to the world in Jesus the King. It includes the story of how it came about through his coming, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. That's what it means to say the gospel of God. The gospel is about God's reign. It is the gospel of God reigning. That's what it is. Second thing we learn about the gospel in this text is that the gospel fulfills many promises. The gospel fulfills many promises. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In the ancient world, one of the characteristics of a gospel was that it frequently included predictions of that particular ruler's reign. In other words, if it was Augustus Caesar, it would talk about how somebody said such and such, and look how it is fulfilled in Augustus Caesar. It validated the ruler's reign. Now, a ruler might have had one, two, possibly three such predictions of his reign, which would be scandalously good in terms of validating his reign. Well, when it comes to predictions, the 39 books of Scripture that we call the Old Testament are loaded with predictions or prophecy. There are approximately, and the number varies depending on what all might be included, an allusion or a direct reference and so forth. But we can say approximately 300 such predictions concerning Christ that he fulfilled. His reign is truly validated. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have copies of the book of Isaiah that date prior to Christ's birth, that they were actually written prior to Christ's birth. So we know that they haven't been altered or adjusted. And the the, the book that contains most of the, I mean, more prophecies than any other single book concerning Christ is the book of Isaiah, and they're all intact right there in the book of Isaiah. Matthew's gospel, not exclusively, but in particular, highlights many predictions which Christ Jesus' life fulfilled. And and it's often with this expression, this was in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And you may recognize that because as you're reading through the Gospels, you'll see that in Matthew's Gospel in particular. John does it much more subtly, where one must know the stories of the Old Testament and then understand how Jesus is fulfilling them in his life. I've said repeatedly in this series that when we read the word Christ in our New Testament, we should think God's good promised king. Now, how do I get from Christ to God's good promised king? Well, one of the keys is this point here. The gospel fulfills many promises. And, and so, Christ comes from the Greek word meaning anointed one. 
just as Messiah comes from the Hebrew word, meaning the same thing. So Christ translated, if, if you go to the Greek Old Testament, Christ is the word that they use to translate Messiah when, when they translate it into Greek. So they, they refer to the same thing, and it, it means anointed one. So again, how do I get from anointed one to God's good promised king? Well, very simply this. Uh, we have to ask the question, anointed to do what? What was he anointed to do? People were anointed for two reasons in the Old Testament. The first, they were anointed to be a priest. In Israel's history, it was important that the priest and the king remain distinct. They should not be mixed. I mean, part of Saul's sin was that he's offering sacrifices and didn't wait for Samuel. Uh, King Uzziah messed up royally when he decided that he could burn incense at the altar. Not his job. That's the job of a priest, okay? So don't mix these things. It kept those things very distinct. And yet, in the course of the Old Testament, the idea of a future priest that would also be a king began to emerge. Or you might say a future king that would also be a priest. Either way, you want to look at it. And you see it in the 110th Psalm. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, who was Melchizedek? He was a priest king that Abram ran into you know, back in Genesis. And so there's this promise looking forward. And that 110th Psalm, by the way, is referenced frequently in the New Testament because it is referring to Christ. The sufferings of the cross were Christ's priestly ministry, offering himself as a pure sacrifice, but they were also sufferings necessary for him to ascend to his reign as king because they define the nature of king that he is. So, People were anointed to be a priest, but they were also anointed to be king. Now, we see that most commonly throughout the story of the, the Old Testament, particularly because of the, the, the line of kings, each one being anointed. But uh, David, we, you may recall, was anointed to be king by Samuel while Saul was still king. And it was long before he ascended the throne. So the anointing and the ascension are not the same thing. Jesus was anointed in the river Jordan when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came on him, right? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That was when he was anointed to be the Christ. He does not ascend the throne until Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. He had days of suffering in between. David had years of suffering under Saul's persecution before he would ascend the throne himself. He refused to be the one who would take Saul's life. He wouldn't be that one. He would rather suffer than to take his Life, But then when Saul died, he was ascended that throne. The promise of a future king was chock full of good things. So Jesus is the one that would be anointed to be the priest king. That's the one that they were looking forward to. And this promise for this future king was chock full of many, many good things. Isaiah 2, and I'm just going to read some examples from Isaiah Isaiah 2, verse 4, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, little side note. When you're reading the Old Testament prophets and you read that phrase, in the last days, you know, when we hear in the last days, we think, oh, you mean the time right before Jesus returns. Whether we should or shouldn't, that's another discussion. But that's what we think. But when they heard in the last days, what they thought was, oh, the day when the Messiah is reigning. Okay, that age that will be different than this age where the Messiah reigns. You know, when, when, when the rich young ruler asked Jesus, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? It, it, it's hard for us to comprehend because of the way, the way the words are, but it wasn't, what must I do to live forever in heaven? That wasn't his question. It was, what must I do to inherit the life of the coming age, the messianic age, that life? Okay? It's the life that we partake of in Jesus. To say that we've received eternal life isn't to say that, oh, we're not going to die. You know, we're going to go to heaven when we die. It's true. That's true. But we've received the life of the coming age now. Okay? So, in the last days, after Messiah comes, we could say, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. So there you see the Gentiles coming. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge, and listen to this good promise. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, the implements of war will now be used to produce food and life instead of death. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now, if you were in Ukraine right now, that's a good promise. If you were in Israel or the occupied territory, that's a good promise. And it is a good promise. Isaiah 9, verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Justice, righteousness. The things people long for today are the promises that are available in Jesus Christ and his reign. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, the spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is the year when everybody's debts get erased, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. These are all the good promises that come with the Messiah, the Anointed One. So when I say, when you read Christ in the New Testament, or Messiah sometimes, uh, some of the translations will use, think, God's good promised king. Because these are the things that are promised in him. So, while Christ is not defined as God's good promised king, but merely as anointed as king, we might say, it means God's good promised king. And as the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus fulfills the many good promises which God had made beforehand, which is what Paul says. Promised beforehand. The gospel announces God's reign. The gospel fulfills many promises. And the gospel is about Christ's ascension to reign. And that's our third point. The gospel is about Christ's ascension. So, so what does Paul say? The gospel of God, which was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. But what does he say it is about? Regarding or about his son. What in particular about his son? 
who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the Spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. There are two things about Jesus that are listed here. First, and by the way, you'll find in older commentaries, this was a common way of glossing over this, but they would say, oh, this speaks of his humanity and his divinity, that he's both human and divine. Well, those are true things to say, but that's not what this is talking about at all. Uh, The first one is that the earthly Jesus was, according to his human nature, a descendant of David. Hence, he was king of the Jews. Okay? Now, that by itself, as wonderful as that is, would not be overly relevant to most of us, unless you happen to be Jewish. What about the rest of us? I mean, if he's king of the Jews, great. What about the Germans? What about the British? What about the Native Americans? What about the uh, Latinos? I mean, we could go on and on and on. Is he king of them too? Well, not by being the son of David. He certainly isn't that. But the second thing he says, that who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, that has something to do with all of us. You see, that is saying that the resurrected human Jesus was appointed the Son of God, ruling, in power by the resurrection from the, among the dead ones. Therefore, Jesus is God's good promised King, our Lord, over everything. The gospel is relevant to every human being. You see, the resurrection of the dead, and therefore the ascension to the right hand of God, his throne is not in Jerusalem. And he's not going to be demoted to a throne there either, just for the record. He's not getting demoted. His throne is over everything in heaven and on earth. Everything. Which means that he is our king too. The gospel is relevant to every human being. Remember the Great Commission. How does it begin? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why the Great Commission is relevant. Because he is king overall the central content of the gospel is about the reign of jesus at the right hand of god his ascension and his rule now does that hold true when we look elsewhere at at paul's descriptions of the gospel Um, you might suspect because i'm asking the question that the answer is yes (laughs) unless he's a really dumb preacher you know you don't want to offer evidence against your point Um, But I do want to look at one that might at least initially appear to be against my point. But we have to do some due diligence. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. On first glance, this one appears to overlook Jesus' ascension. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, which I preach to you which you have received, on, on, um, I'm sorry, I, I think I skipped a line. The, the, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, 
the Christ, that Christ or the Messiah, the God's good promised king, died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Note that repeated phrase. Why? Because there are promises that came beforehand, just like Paul said in Romans 1. And, verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, if you'll notice, the, the focus there, that, well, the most ink that he spilled there is about the resurrection and the evidences of the resurrection. Now, it tells the whole story. Because remember, the, the gospel begins with his coming, and well, even we could say the predictions about it, the prophecies, but his coming, his life, his teachings, uh, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But so far, it would appear that the ascension is at least missed, at most alluded to, but at, in all probability missed. But we can't stop there. The more attentive of us might say, well, that's the gospel. He said that's what was passed down to him. Where's the ascension? Hang on. <laughs> Closer look. When Paul, so, so his primary concern in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is a resurrection. A bodily resurrection of some kind. I mean, you know, different kind of body for sure, but a bodily resurrection. And, and so he, he focuses, yes, to be sure on the resurrection, and then he digresses. He jumps in verses 9 through 11 to his own experience of seeing the resurrected Jesus, and, and, and he goes on to explain his role as the 13th apostle, which we've talked about before and why that's significant and how it fulfills prophecies of the Old Testament as well. But then in verse 12, he gets to his main point. But if it is preached that Christ Messiah, God's good promised king, has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And he presses that point home all the way through verse 23 because that's the driving argument of the chapter. He's taken that focus in the gospel of the resurrection of Christ and he's driving home a key point. But notice where he ends his gospel message, beginning in verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Verse 25, by the way, is going to be the ascension. Pay close attention. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. A quote right out of the 110th Psalm that we referenced earlier. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under the Christ. That's the ascension. He may have taken a moment to get there because he digressed on a couple of matters and had to drive home the point of the chapter, which is that there is a resurrection, because some of them were questioning that. But that is, in fact, the gospel. Philippians 2, another what I often call a, a, a gospel summary, though it, it doesn't say right there, hey, this is the gospel, like we had in, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, but it's clear that it is. And, and right above it, just, I don't know, we're five verses or so below where we, we had read a couple weeks ago about citizenize yourself or uh, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of the Christ. 
So it's right below that. But here it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verses 9 through 11 are entirely focused on the ascension of Jesus. I, I, I think that, though we all would say we believe in the ascension, that by and large our gospel diet has been ascension light. And, and when I read the New Testament, it is not ascension light. It's ascension thick. It's heavy with the ascension. And evidently, the way that we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is by having this mind in us, which was also uh, held by the king in the gospel. And the climactic point of that story there is the ascension of Jesus to rule and reign over everything, to be given a name above every other name. So the gospel announces God's reign. The gospel fulfills many promises. And the gospel is about Christ's ascension to reign over everything. And the gospel calls forth loyal obedience. The gospel calls forth loyal obedience. And this is our fourth and final point. In David and Karen Maine's excellent children's book, Tales of the Kingdom, Hero, one of the central characters, hears a cry that echoed through the woods. How goes the world? An answer came back from somewhere else. The world goes not well. Then another answer from another quadrant. The kingdom comes. How goes the world? The world goes not good. The kingdom comes. Wait, wait, Hero exclaimed. I don't understand. I don't understand anything. What is a kingdom? The kingdom of what? Where is the kingdom? Amanda's jaw dropped. She laughed in surprise. Why, that's the first rule of Great Park. A kingdom is any place where the king rules. The kingdom is not only here. It is anywhere the king is and is obeyed. It is anywhere the king is and is obeyed. When we cry out, your kingdom come, there's a reason it's followed by your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the kingdom is anywhere the king is and is obeyed. Amen? Amen. The idea of a kingdom or the reign of a king implicitly includes obedience to the king. That Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power, which is a title of royal reign. It's a title of kingship. That he is declared to be the Son of God with power. Reference Psalm 2 to, if you want to see that, that it's a title of kingship. But that, it, that he is called a king implies that he is to be obeyed. Without that, it is a meaningless kingdom.
couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that the gospel calls us to something. And a gospel that doesn't call us to something is no gospel at all. It does not proclaim a reign. It proclaims something else. It, it, it called Paul, we see in our text back in Romans 1, it called Paul as an apostle in order that he would then call the rest of us Gentiles through uh, uh, Paul to what? To the obedience that comes from faith, as the NIV reads in verse 5. The obedience that comes from faith. Now, the significance of that phrase, the obedience that comes from faith, because admittedly, you know, it's not a common phrase we th- see throughout the whole New Testament, but its significance is heightened by the fact that the book of Romans not only begins with Paul saying this, but it ends with Paul saying this. Over in chapter 16, at the very end of this letter, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, and keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the, here it is, the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Through Jesus, God's good promise, King. Amen. Amen. So this whole letter, this whole book, as we call it, Romans, letter, it stands between these two bookends about how we are called to the obedience of faith and Christ's reign at the right hand of God. The, the phrase translated obedience of faith kind of woodenly, and the ESV does that, which is good. The obedience that comes from faith, I think is how the NIV put it, and we just read. The, the, the phrase hupokain, uh, um, or there we go, pisteos, it, it, it's just simply obedience of faith, but it can mean one of four things, okay? One, it could mean that the obedience to the faith, like, you know, there's the Christian faith and I'm going to obey the Christian faith. It could mean that. I think it's unlikely because it doesn't have the definite article before faith, ma- making it the faith. So I think that's unlikely. It could mean subjective, as in the obedience which faith produces or requires, There's nothing wrong with that, and that's how the NIV goes with the obedience that comes from faith. Okay, It's it's obedience that faith produces. It could mean obedience, namely faith. The obedience, namely faith. That's a possibility. But the fourth one, no no surprise, is the one I think it means, most likely because the context is Christ's enthronement there in the first chapter of Romans, in the heavenlies. And Matthew Bates has done an excellent uh, work to show that when this word, uh, pistos, when it's used in the context of royal language, we, we normally translate it faith or believe, but if it refers to Jesus or God, we call it faithfulness. Other places, faithfulness, loyalty, so forth. But in their world, when that word was used in the context of a king and his ruling, it referred to allegiance, we might say, faithfulness, loyalty, commitment to that king. And so, he would, Matthew Bates would say it's allegiant faith or faithful obedience might be a good way to describe that word. But here it's the obedience of that loyalty. So it's, it's driving toward that point of obedience or faithful obedience. So that fourth way is what I'll call believing obedience or more precisely loyal obedience, loyal 
obedience. Loyal obedience to the gospel is not an outlier. This is not some strange doctrine. Yes, we have it at the beginning of Romans and at the end of Romans, but we have it elsewhere too. Uh, for instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes, This service, referring to the Corinthians' generous sacrificial giving for the poor, that you perform, he's expecting them to do it, so he's <laughs> writing it this way, <laughs> little, little subtle pressure as, he's, as he does that. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves Others will praise God, listen, for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. That's just a longer way of saying the obedience of faith, loyal obedience. Your obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Or how about 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8? He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. But, uh, do not obey the gospel of our Lord, Jesus, our Lord Jesus. Or how about Peter? So we'll go away from Paul. Let's go to Peter in 1 Peter 4, 7. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will, be the outcome for, uh, what will the outcome be for those who do not, notice the words, obey the gospel of God? There is something to be obeyed in the proclamation of God's reign. This obedience of the Gentiles in Romans that Paul is speaking of is part of Paul's priestly service in the gospel. We read in Romans 15, Paul speaks of the grace that God gave him, quote, to be a minister of Christ, God's good promised king, Jesus, to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that, notice these words, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I, I have a priestly duty. What do priests do? They offer sacrifices. And I'm offering a sacrifice. Well, it's you. That's what he's saying. You Gentiles. I'm, I'm offering you as a sacrifice made holy to God. You ever thought of yourself as a sacrifice? Well, Paul did. Paul did. You see, that's the same sacrifice there in chapter 15 that he spoke of in chapter 12, this offering of the Gentiles to God. In chapter 12, he said, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, the chapter goes on to describe what this living sacrifice looks like, this loyal obedience, if you will. And at the heart of it, we read this, love must be sincere. See, this is what loyal obedience looks like. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. 
but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, the life of loyal obedience, of the obedience of faith, if you will, it's not flashy. It is sacrificial. It does good. And it is by faith that good overcomes evil. It takes, it requires faith that good will overcome evil. You see, the life of loyal obedience follows the ways of our good king. Amen? As we're partaking of the Lord's table this morning, I was just thinking of the reality that Jesus takes that cup and he drinks it first, literally by suffering himself. You see, he he calls us to take up our cross and follow him, but he drinks it first. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done first. The gospel is about the restoration of God's reign. It fulfills many promises. It is about the ascension of Jesus to rule over everything in heaven and on earth. And it calls us to loyal obedience to a changed way of life. Bottom line, as Paul goes on to say, you have been called to Jesus the Christ. Jesus, God's good promised king. The NIV reads, you have been called to belong to. And that's certainly one of the the nuances of that that phrase, to belong to Jesus Christ, or called to, literally, Jesus Christ. But we're called to belong to Him, yes. We're called to serve Him. We're called to be His representatives. We're called to be conformed to His image. We're called to, to be ambassadors in His kingdom. Amen? Why is the church in a better position today than it was when we had prayer in school, Sundays for church only, and marriage defined biblically? I think we're in a better place because we can't look to the culture for our answers. We can't force others to follow Scripture, but must actually make the gospel attractive by our way of life. We must live a life that is a light in a dark place. And we are, in effect, left like the early church who had no power in either Jewish or Roman society, but had all the power they needed in the ways of the cross. We, ought, we, we must forsake the other ways of power and embrace the ways of the cross if we're going to fulfill our mission. Two weeks ago, I, I mentioned Philippians 3.20 where it says we are citizens in heaven. Moffat, in his translation, captures the point well when he says we are a colony of heaven. What does that mean? After that message, Seaver Stanton came up to me and he says, the church is a bunch of walking embassies. (laughs) This gets close to the point, I think. Maybe we are an embassy as a local church in a particular place, and each one is an ambassador of heaven. Our mission is to spread the culture and communication of heaven to, as we saw in chapter 1 of Philippians, to citizenize ourselves, to, to, to live as citizens of that city, even though we're here in this city, to bring that culture here, to live on earth as it is in heaven. We're not here to be liked. We're not even here to draw a crowd. 
That is not our goal. Our goal is not to have the biggest church we can possibly be. Our goal is not to assimilate into the world. We are here to infiltrate the world with a, with a culture, a life that is from another place, one that shows people what our king is like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, enable us to show the world what our King is like. Give us the power to live the lives that you call us to live, which can only be done by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, to be sanctified by the Spirit so that we might be an offering acceptable to you, pleasing to you, an aroma pleasing to you. May it be, Lord, that whatever sacrifices we make, that they do arise as an incense before you because they're done in Jesus Christ and not in our own strength. Amen and amen. Let's stand.